So now we come to the seven letters to the seven churches. A couple of sort of big picture things. We said last time that the seven churches in Revelation can be looked at several ways, all of which are correct. One is, of course, they are seven literal local churches with seven distinct personalities. Okay? And you all have been in enough churches, I'm sure, that you recognize that every church has a distinct personality. It has things that it's good at, things that it's not so good at, things that it likes, and things, you know, that kind of stuff. So from that perspective, these are seven pastoral letters to seven churches with seven distinct personalities, uh, seven distinct sets of problems. Okay? And it works just fine on that level, and that level is true. The next level is that it represents each of these churches. If you look at what's going on in each of these churches, you can lay it against the history of Christianity from the time that Yeshua died until whenever he returns. Okay, So you have distinct stages and phases in the history of what we would call Christianity represented by each of these seven churches. So in that sense, they are historical. Uh, and then, of course, they're also prophetic. Okay? So as we go through that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at it each of those ways as we go through each one of them. You have seven churches. You also have two groups of churches. You have a group of three and then a group of four. Okay? And the way we know that, and, and I'm not yet sure what that means, but you all are sharp, so I'm sure you're going to tell me by the time we get there. The way we know that is each of these letters is in a format. Okay? And so you have basically, you know, the title that Yeshua uses about himself. Then you have a commendation. You know, I, I know your works and this is what you're doing right. Uh, there are two churches that don't have that section in there. Then you have a section of, nevertheless, I have this against you, which is a section on criti criticism. And again, you've got two churches that don't have any criticism. Then you've got an exhortation uh, where basically he offers a prescription for correcting the thing that he criticized, or in the case where there is no criticized criticism, just to, you know, buck up, be of good courage, that kind of thing. And then finally you've got a closure, and then you've got a, a promise to the overcomer. Okay? In the first three churches, the closure, which is he who had an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, comes before the promise to the overcomer. Okay? So in Ephesus, Smyrna, and, and Pergamum, the he who has an ear comes first, and then you have the promise to the overcomer. In the final four churches, you have the promise to the overcomer, then the closure. So you've got three and four. And as I say, if, if somebody has a, has a really exciting insight into that as we go through it, by all means, jump in there and say so. Yeshua has parables, and each one of these, each of his parables corresponds to one of these churches, and I'll point those out as we go through. And then finally, um, Paul has got 
seven letters. And each of the seven letters corresponds to one of the churches. Of course, the first one is easy. Ephesus, Ephesians. Okay? And also the parable of the sower and the sword. Soils goes with Ephesus. So with that, let's jump into Ephesus, which is the first one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, now at this point we don't need to guess what that means. Because he's already told you what that means, right? He said that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And he's saying he holds them in his right hand. And of course the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what he's talking about then is he is the one who stands among the churches and he is the one who holds the churches in his hand. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and know you cannot bear with those who are evil, who have, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, so there's the commendation. That's, that's the good part of the report card. Basically what he's saying to these guys is first off, you are tenacious. Okay? You're, you're hanging in there. And you are being faithful to me. And furthermore, he is saying that you are doctrinally correct. And that you're not afraid when some you know, random preacher comes through there with a three-day pass and a briefcase, you are not afraid to stand up and look this guy in the face and say, no, you're teaching false doctrine. Okay? And that's a good thing. And by the way, in, in the, if you look at this from the perspective of the last 2,000 years, Ephesus would represent what is called the apostolic church. You know, the church at the time the apostles still lived. And that's when the letters were written by John and Peter and Paul. That's when doctrine or halaha was established for the messianic church. And so Ephesus would represent that period of the church. And, of course, you know that historically Paul spent a fair amount of time in Ephesus. The last thing that he did before being shipped off to Rome is he gave a farewell to the elders at the church of Ephesus. Clearly Paul had, had a, a special relationship, if you will, with the church at Ephesus. And, again, if you look at the commendation here and you think about Paul, well, what was Paul? teaching halaha to Gentiles, right? Paul is establishing doctrine. And what is Ephesus doing? Contending for the purity of doctrine, right? So you can see how temperamentally Paul and Ephesus fit nicely. And so it's, it's perfectly natural that he would have had uh, an affinity for these guys. Where am I here? Force four. But, in some of your translations will say, nevertheless... Okay? which is to say, I just said, I just commended you, however, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Okay, so that's the downside. Then we're going to follow, have exhortation after this. 
Now, what is the greatest commandment? And your neighbor is yourself, right? So what we're doing is we are starting off, and, and you know this is sort of a major slap across the face, because you have Yeshua, who, when arguing with the Pharisees, asked the guy, you know, what do you see? What do you see the greatest commandment in the Torah is? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. What's the problem with Ephesus? They've lost that. They've lost that. I mean, that's all he says. But I, I got to tell you, that's a big one. That, that's that's not a that's not a small thing. When I was first getting serious about God, I spent a lot of time on an internet discussion board about uh, prophecy. And the people there were mostly what I would today call Calvinists, uh, or you know syncretist with a heavy Calvinist persuasion. Trouble with the church is, you know, bad ideas never go away. They just get recycled. So once somebody throws a bad idea out there, it, it takes on a life of its own. So these folks tended to be Calvinists. They tended to be Bible literalists, which I like. You know, I, 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 I agree with Bible literalists. But there was one gal there that I got to know really well. In fact, I... Uh, driving, she lived up in uh, Idaho, I think. My parents live in eastern Washington, or lived at that time in eastern Washington, and my sisters live on the coast, so went back and forth several times, and, and stopped there one time, going through, and, you know, met her, and so forth like this. But her, she prided herself, and I use that word precisely, she prided herself on being a heresy detector. And that was her thing, is she regarded it as her mission to contend for the purity of the word and contend for the purity of doctrine, and she was vicious. She, I mean, she was ruthless, heartless, vicious, and one of the problems with the internet, of course, is you're not seeing people face to face. So people tend to be a bit intemperate in their language. She just, you know, would go after people with sharp sticks if she thought they were taking any position that was contrary to her understanding of doctrine. Now, she was a dispensationalist. She believed in a pre-trib rapture. She was a Calvinist. At that point, I was still trying to figure out what I was. Okay. I have since come to be convinced that all three of those are major errors. So here's somebody who has what I believe is an incorrect take on scripture and basically she's doing her best to stomp on people who don't have that same understanding. Okay? Now Yeshua is saying here you guys are persevering, you're doing well, you're contending for the doctrine, but you have lost your first love and when I read that I think of this gal She's not focused on the love of God. What she's focused on is scoring debating points. What she's focused on is running people out of there that she that don't see things the way she sees them. Okay? No love involved. And Yeshua is clearly not pleased with that. 
Now, let's pop up a level. This letter was written, depending on how you date it, the, the most common dating of it is about 95 A.D. Could have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and there's, a, there's a, stra a strain of thought that thinks that that's the case. Could be. But the point is, written well after Yeshua's death and resurrection, and the church has been around at that point for somewhere between 30 and 60 years. Everybody got the time frame. And at this point in church history, you have got five of seven churches who have gone seriously astray. They're off in the weeds. And you still have apostles that are alive at that point in history. John is still alive. Extra-biblical sources indicate that John may have been the bishop over this area. And yet you have these, these churches that have gone heavily off into the weeds so that Yeshua, through John, feels compelled to write them letters and jerk them up short and correct them. And they are serious enough errors that Yeshua himself is writing to them. In other words, these are not small things. One of the things that that should tell you is when you read stuff by the early church fathers, you need to take that with a grain of salt. People tend to think that the older something is, the more authoritative it is. And these guys were writing, and you know they knew people who knew Yeshua, and they knew people who knew the apostles. And these guys' writings are authoritative. Not necessarily so. Not necessarily so. Because, again, these... And, and, oh, the other thing, by the way, is these are major churches. You know, these are not little home fellowships. Okay? These are big churches. In, in Ephesus, there was enough, of, enough elders there to constitute a crowd when, when Paul got shipped off. Right? You understand what I'm saying? So, this, as I say, this is not, you know two guys in a sacrificial sheep that have just sort of gotten off, this, these are big churches. And they are in serious error within a very, very short time after Yeshua's death. Okay? So, again, you will have people, as you talk to them, and again, I've had people pull the early church fathers on me, you know, draw them like a pistol. Well, Clement says, and off they go. And what I'm telling you is that these guys went to these churches. Okay? Not and not necessarily these guys to these churches, but you understand what I'm saying. These were the guys that were in charge of this set of early churches that Yeshua felt it necessary to jerk up and say, wait a minute, guys, you got a problem here. It's very hard to change someone's mind if his mindset is to score debating points. If his mindset is... I don't understand this, or I see this a different way. Let's reason about this from Scripture. Then you may come to an understanding, and that's what you hope will happen. So anyway, what I'm saying about here at Ephesus is that Yeshua's correction here is a big one. This, this is not, not a minor criticism that they've lost their first love. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, 
if you've got the Messiah calling you to repentance, that to me is an indication that you've got a serious problem. And, and he's telling them to remember where they were. So at one point they were fine. In other words, they didn't start off in error. They started off properly and have slipped into error. And what he's asking them to do is recall where they were before and return to that. To have a second honeymoon. And in fact, they haven't gone, they have aggressively not gone into idol worship. I mean, they are doctrinally sound. It is not the case that these guys don't understand. They do. They've got sound doctrine. And it's just that they have become cold. Yep, thank you. I agree. They've become Torah terrorists. Sure. I didn't want to talk, I didn't plan to talk on Torah terrorism. This, by the way, is a ditch we find attractive. And the reason we find that this ditch is attractive is because most of us have come out of a Sunday church, and when we get to um, Pergamos and Thyatira, what we're going to find is we're going to see all of the compromises that the Sunday church has made with the world. And there's a bunch of them. If you go to any Catholic priest worth his salt or any Baptist minister worth his salt or, or whatever, they will freely acknowledge that the roots of Christmas are pagan. This is well known. This is not, this is not anything new. It's not anything that's not well understood. And what they will do is they will rationalize it. And they will say, we have carried the name of Jesus into all of these places by taking the things that the pagans were doing and putting God right on top of them. So we've taken these people and turned them into Christians. And we have spread the word of God. We have done well. That is what a Catholic priest will tell you. Okay? Or an Episcopal priest or whatever. When you finally come to the realization that God says in the Torah, under no circumstances will you mix the worship of me with the worship of anybody else, and you come to understand what that means, and you say, whoop, 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 and you start backing out like a crawfish, your tendency then is to look back at where you were and say, oh, man, are they bad. They are really in trouble. That is evil. I mean, you met them all. You met them in this church. Well, I will guarantee you that none of you got here by somebody coming up to you and saying, you are evil. You didn't get here that way. And I will further guarantee you that going up to some Sunday Christian and telling him that same thing isn't going to get you anywhere either. The only way that you bring people to this understanding and understanding of the Torah is gently. That's how God brought you, and that's the only way you're going to get anybody else in here. The church at Ephesus is really attractive to Messianics, okay? Because we prize knowledge, we prize studying the Scripture. We think that we have got sound doctrine, and we think that we've got insights into scripture that, scripture that you know, any one of us could have written a letter to the Ephesians by God, right? We know that much. And what I'm saying is, that's the error that the Ephesian church has fallen into. Losing your first love 
when that involves God, is major. And it takes Yeshua to point it out to them. They haven't figured this out for themselves. And then, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's also a big deal. As we read in Revelation, one of the plagues is what? Darkness. Darkness. One of the plagues in Revelation, just as it was in Egypt, is going to be darkness. So if you are a church and you do not have your lampstand, I will suggest that you've got a real problem. You know, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that you won't make it through, but it does mean that you've got a serious problem because we've got a plague of darkness coming up. As I think I told people a couple times ago, for historical stuff, I am relying on a study by Chuck Nistler. Okay, so I'm taking his scholarship on some of this. One of the things that happens is this church at Ephesus goes away. No longer exists. In fact, even the town of Ephesus is just a little village now. Nothing like the city that was there. And this was a major city in Asia Minor. The city is no longer there, and the church is no longer there. The, the two churches that Yeshua doesn't have anything negative to say, which is Smyrna and Philadelphia, are still, go, still going today. And again, I'm relying on Chuck Missler's scholarship for that. that. That's not something I haven't I verified independently. But he's a good scholar, and I, I trust him. Again, you can, you can look at it two ways. One is that he removes them as a church, which did happen. That's no longer a church. But the other one is people who fall into the trap of the church of Ephesus, and you can fall into that trap individually as well as corporately. One of the things to be aware of is that without your lampstand, going through Revelation is going to be unpleasant. Uh, where am I here? Verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, Nicolaitans. Lots of opinions on who the Nicolaitans was. By the time we get, I believe it's to Pergamos, either Pergamos or Thyatira, um, it is going to be the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So at this point it is uh, the works of the Nicolaitans, it's going to be the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and I think that's it. Pergamos, thank you. So what is the Nicolaitans? Who are the Nicolaitans? What do the Nicolaitans do? Schofield says that they live licentiously. Okay. One of the things that you have, pagan religions tend to be centered around the temple, and they tend to go in big time for bodily functions. One of the problems that we have in the early church, and especially in Pergamos and Thyatira, is that the church basically just took all of the pagan stuff and put a cross sticker on it, and they brought pagans and the pagan hierarchy directly into the church with nothing except Basically, you know, you, you, you took off the cape that had a bull on it, and you put on a cape that had a cross on it, and you went on your way. Not much more than that. So what you had is you had stuff going on in the church, and there are, there are church sects whose doctrine was, to the pure, all things are pure. 
okay? And I don't remember which particular sect of Christianity had that staying. To the pure, all things were pure. And they basically engaged in licentious behavior under the rubric that we are pure in heart, so this is all okay. Okay? So you have every perversion that the pagan world can think of, the Christian church has been involved in. So the idea that this group of Nicolaitans were people who were living licentiously is certainly not beyond the realm of historical practice. Again, going back to Missler, who I'm trusting for scholarship here, uh, he says that the word literally means ruling the laity. Nico means ruler, laity. In other words, what it says is a priesthood as in the Catholic Church, where you have church elders basically ruling over laity, as opposed to everybody studying Scripture for himself. And again, buy that if you want. It, it, clearly, it's something that Yeshua doesn't like. And by the time you get to Thyatira, it's a doctrine, whereas before it was simply a practice. It makes sense to me, but that doesn't mean it's right. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a formula that every letter has. And so I think it's probably a good thing for us to figure out what it means. If you go to Deuteronomy 29, pick it up at verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, hold your place. I'm going to come back and talk about that in a minute. But fast forward to Psalm 115. Pick it up at, uh, actually pick it up at the beginning. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel feet that do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Okay? So one of the things that Yeshua said very frequently is, he who has an ear, let him hear. Remember, it's it's sort of a catchphrase. Eyes to see and ears to hear. Yeshua says it over and over. So for having him say that in his letters is very typical of Yeshua. And what it means is, are you an idol worshiper or are you focused on me? So we have here in Psalm 115, they're talking about idols. They have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, and those who make them and those who trust in them become like them. So if you become like an idol, you have eyes but do not see, you have ears but do not hear. Everybody follow the train of logic. All right, now let's go back to Deuteronomy. As as Brian says, Deuteronomy 29 is not a happy part of the Torah. And remember when we went through 
giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. God's desire and purpose for Israel was that he be able to write his Torah on their hearts and they would not. So as soon as God gave the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel fell back and said, Moses, we can't take this or we'll die. You go up and talk to him and come down and tell us what he said. And at that point, we had tablets of stone. And what God was doing there was saying, I wanted to write my word on your heart. You would not. Therefore, I'm going to give you that same word written on tablets of stone, and you're going to schlep those around until such time as you get ready for hearts of flesh, and I can write my law where it's supposed to be written, but the tablets of stone that you're going to schlep around are a reminder to you that you would not. Yep, the comment was that uh, while the first set of tablets was being written, that was when we did the golden calf. You're correct. And, and because of the golden calf, we then have the tabernacle. So you have two failings. Failing number one is we will not listen to God. Moses, you go up and listen to him for us. That's failing number one, and for that you get tablets of stone. Failing number two is the golden calf, and so for that you get the tabernacle which is the only way that God is able to be in your midst without destroying you is with this special tabernacle and the set of priesthood to separate you from me so you don't don't get destroyed. Okay, So what Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy 29, in verse 4, but to this day, in other words, you you guys saw all this stuff all the signs and wonders, you saw what I did in Egypt, you saw it all, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So what he's saying is, you had your chance at Sinai. Had you stood there and let me write my Torah on your heart like I wanted to, then you would have taken a whole different set of lessons out of these things that you have seen. But because you didn't, you still don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. So what I'm saying to you is this phrase, eyes to see and ears to hear, has to do with hearts of stone and it has to do with idol worship. Okay? Everybody see the the connections there? And what Yeshua is saying to each of the seven churches at the end is... If you do not have a heart of stone, and if you are not essentially an idol worshiper, which is to say you have your attention fixed on something else, listen to this and learn from it. All right, so now then we have the promise to the overcomer. So verse 7 is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So why that? Why is that the thing that he gives to the overcomer or the conqueror? Because each church gets something different. Measure for measure. Measure for measure. Measure for measure. What's their problem? They've eaten of the tree of knowledge. They've eaten of the tree of knowledge, haven't they? 
And so what does he give them to eat if they overcome? The tree of life. Remember, there's two trees in the garden. Right? There's two trees in the garden. You've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what does Ephesus do well? They've got the knowledge of good and evil down pat, haven't they? That's the thing he he commends them for. You guys have got the knowledge of good and evil down pat. You can recognize evil at 40 yards. Measure for measure. What's the other side if you overcome? You get to eat from the tree of life. And every one of these things is the same way. It's measure for measure. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an extra... of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.